Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. Those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on WPRR 1680 AM, or you can listen streaming online at www.publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio is my fellow doubtcaster. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. Uh, Dr. Professor Luke Galen is not with us today. He is, however, joining you for an interview later on in the episode with uh, David Myers. Yes, David Myers from Hope College. Uh, later on on the show, he's written a book that is a response to the new atheists entitled A Friendly Letter to Skeptics and Atheists. And we're going to discuss a broad range of issues with him, and I, I'm hoping that our listeners will get a lot out of it. Yeah, he's done uh, some research similar to uh, what Luke has done for his non-religious affiliation survey. Yes, on the other side. He's yeah. a social psychologist, and uh, a lot of his studies do bear on the psychology of religion. So he's he's kind of like the uh, – maybe the bizarro, bizarro world version of Luke. <laughs> yes. Heaven help him. So we've got that coming up later in the show. So, Dave. Yes, sir. I was at dinner the other night with a friend of mine, and he mentioned that he saw you on the television. Yeah. Yes. What was it you were uh, – were you receiving a ticket or giving a ticket? I, uh, what was the deal? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting – I'm actually getting harassed by a man beeping. Um, pretty much anyone in Michigan – has probably or will probably see this commercial soon. It's a, it's a click it or ticket commercial, right? Click it or right? ticket ad. Um, not only did I do that, but there's a couple of online exclusives too, which include a bedroom scene. Whoa, so, no way. Yeah, uh, YouTube uh, slash the Beat Beat Man or something uh, like that. Search <laughs> Beat Beat Man. Are you in the buff? No, I'm not in the buff. I, I actually got to wear borrowed pajamas. Um well, I knew you were doing commercials, but yeah. uh, I didn't know what for. And my my friend was kind of shocked. He he said uh, he, he actually said, called me right after he saw oh, the yeah? commercial. Yeah. yeah, he said he wouldn't have been surprised to see you on Cops, but uh, to see you on a commercial <laughs> that that was a surprise for him. Yeah, yeah, that's that's me. So thank you for that. That's great. I'm I'm so glad that people get to see that. I now have the children following behind me, going beep beep beep. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So lest we be accused of being too chatty and snarky, let's uh, let's go. If you want to be chatty with us, you're going to get an opportunity next week. That's right. This is big. We are going to be live on the air on 1680 AM WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids. If you're in the West Michigan area, you can listen to us on the radio. Otherwise, everyone else can listen to the stream at publicrealityradio.org. Yeah, uh, even if you're not in West Michigan, if you're going to be up and awake around that time and you can hear us online, yep, streaming live, and uh, there will be opportunities for call-ins, right? Yes, and that's from 10 to noon Eastern Standard Time, uh, Friday the 22nd. Um, and You'll be able to call in if, if you want to join the discussion at area code 616-656-1680. And in fact, if you're listening to this episode on the air or streaming right now um, on Friday at 9 a.m., that's what's coming up next. And if you're listening to it any other time, this is absolutely useless information and is probably um, uh, annoying and frustrating for those of you who missed it. But, but what's the show that we're going to be on? We are going to be on a show called Faith and Reason, which is produced here at WPRR, hosted by uh, Pastor Bill Freeman who's a um, Journey Church UCC in Holland, Michigan, yes. I believe. Yep, and uh, Fred Wooden from the Fountain Street Church, um, which is a 
uh, UU Church here in Grand Rapids. Actually, they're they're technically independent, but are they? Are, are they? Yeah, they're oh, okay. similar to I've a always, UU style I've of worship. They were uh, UUs, but okay, and, and I believe some other guests as well. All three of us will will be around for that. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Looking yeah. forward to that. Looking forward to an interesting conversation, and we would certainly like your help to uh, ask questions and, and provide challenges. And yes. Feel free to email those in ahead of time, too. Speaking of interesting conversations, we've had a lot of really interesting uh, conversations in our email and on our um, blog comments recently. Yeah. Our latest couple of episodes, which have been high in counter-apologetics content um, really generated a lot of discussion, which is great. Looking at the most recent episode where we talked about the unintelligibility of God, we have a comment here from John Frost who says, I've got a question, guys. You talk a lot in this episode about the illogical consistencies of God, but what about the illogicalness? Is that a word? I like it if it's not. Yeah, it should be. Of things like quantum physics. Why is being logically inconsistent such a problem? That's a great question. And luckily, um, another listener responded before uh, we even had to. Amen Hotep, who I believe is related to Bubba Hotep, says... Mm, Bubba Hotep. That's a great movie if you haven't seen it. I love Bubba Hotep. Um, Bruce Campbell as Elvis. Brilliant, brilliant film. Anyway, Amen Hotep says, Quantum physics illogical? Zudelar. Who is, he might be one of our French listeners. I doubt it, though. Uh, counterintuitive? Yes. Fiendishly counterintuitive, indeed. But it is immensely logical. It's just a different kind of logic from the type we're used to. Smiley face. Yeah, and I think it's a good observation. I don't want to say too much about quantum physics because yeah. I, I really have no sort of right to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't know much about this area, but the discoveries of quantum physics... Um, some of those spooky relationships at the level of the very, very small. Or the very, very large. Yes, with general relativity, you, you see right. things like that also. Mm-hmm. They, they do challenge a lot of our intuitions. They are difficult to think about. But there's a lot of math mm-hmm. that suggests these things. And in fact, um, and these counterintuitive ideas actually yield predictions testable predictions in many cases that people have gone out and then tested and confirmed. Right. And so even though concepts in quantum physics are very, very difficult for anyone to wrap their mind around, Mm -hmm. these are things that we are nevertheless able to reason about and reason carefully about it. So in a strict sense, yes, it is difficult to say those things are are illogical. Uh, Somebody else responding to John's comment mentioned you know, why is being logically inconsistent such a problem? This is unbeguiled on mm-hmm. the blog. He says, because without logical consistency, communication is impossible. And we talked about this a little bit too, about yeah. how if, you don't, if you're not defining the terms and ideas, um, we used uh, the Jabberwocky as an example. Mm-hmm. You know. He brings up in his case, he mentions you know, some of the classical axioms of logic, like the law of identity, A equals A. That, that means a thing is itself. It cannot be itself and the negation of itself right. at the same time. These are basic rules that make any sort of conversation or communication or reasoning intelligible. If you are not following them, you're really forfeiting the rules of dialogue. Um, somebody could, could say to me, for example, well, look, I don't believe in the law of identity. I reject the law of identity, uh, that a thing is itself. But what they've done then is... is used it at least twice in that sentence. That's right. Yeah. You, you cannot even speak. You can't even open your mouth without accepting the laws of logic yeah. as, as you're starting, as your background assumptions. In fact, the, the axioms of logic are the very grounds on which any proof can rest. So it's it's not something we have the luxury to just toss aside. Right. Um, but uh, but John's comment was a good one. It's worth responding to, and, yes. and thank you for sending that in. And thanks to the other people who responded before we even got a chance to because they were good responses. We had another listener email kind of along the same lines. This is from – I'm not sure if it's Thomas Z or if it's Tomas, but we'll just call him Tom. There you go. Tom uh, said – on the subject of meaninglessness of supernatural and God, you presented 
a hypothetical conversation that went something like this. And, you know, the atheist says, what is God made of? The theist says, spirit. The atheist says, what is spirit? And the theist says, I, I don't know. And he's more or less correct. We were, we were talking about, you know, what does it mean to be a thing of nothing? Yeah, an immaterial substance, right. an incorporeal body. And and if you try to say spirit, well, that's not really giving us any sort of new information. Right. Tom says, if the failure to explain spirit is what makes things claimed to be made of spirit meaningless, then we would be in trouble with mundane terms too. And he talks about quarks, things, uh, you know, basic matter and energy. Right. I think he uses the example of a teapot. You know, if, if we were to ask, well, what is a teapot made of? We would say, you know, it's a uh, ceramic. Well, what's that made of? It's it's made of matter. Well, what is matter made of? It's made of atoms. Well, what are they made of? Quarks. And we would terminate eventually in something that, that we really do have only a fuzzy understanding of at best. Right, right. So Tom says, whatever kind of fundamental particle or element we end up with, the questioning ends the same way. Maybe it's interesting to say something about what the difference is and to elaborate a little on why you think we might be justified in saying that spirit is meaningless and teapot isn't. Right, because we know we, we have a teapot, yet we can't explain ultimately what it's made up of. When we push it to the horizons of what we understand with science. Yes. When matter breaks down into, into energy, yes, it, it, we do get to this point where we're suddenly not so sure. It's, mm -hmm. it's not as clear and tangible as we may have thought previously. I don't really see this as much of a challenge to the point we were making, though. And my answer would be similar to, to the last challenge that we looked at. And that is, even if when we push this to the boundaries of our knowledge, things get fuzzy, we're not so certain. Nevertheless, what we're talking about is quantifiable. We can measure it. We can break it down into its constituent parts for quite a while right? until we get to that point where it becomes confusing exactly what we're talking about. Now, what I think this should prompt us to is a certain intellectual humility, a recognition that, that there really are mysteries out there that science hasn't completely answered. But this is not, this is not an equivalent situation to talking about spirit. Spirit doesn't even get off the ground. It's the first step when, when describing what, what God is made of. When, when we're doing a teapot, we're following this long trail before we get to a, a fuzzy end. Spirit is just from the beginning. Yes, and, and, and we, can't, we can't quantify spirit in the same way. We can't manipulate spirit in the same way. We can't put it in a Petri dish mm -hmm. and say, this is spirit— Ultimately, we don't fully understand it, but we know this is it. We can't do that with spirit. And that was the entire point of what we were trying to say. I think it's an unreasonably high standard to expect God to be intelligible in the sense that we can completely understand it, that we could completely fathom sure. that being. But we should be able to put some sort of intellectual content to it. Mm -hmm. In many cases, it's not clear we can. Spirit is one of those where I'm I'm pretty convinced that there is no content at all that you can put to the term. But I'd be willing to hear someone out if, if they've proposed anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, along with, with those comments and emails, we got a number of others too about this. Um, people talking about things like the gender of God. We got a couple of letters about. A couple people brought up gender uh, uh, and, and were surprised that we – spoke of God as a he. Right. And uh, really, we, we were just doing that by convention uh, because it's what people are used to. We weren't claiming that God is masculine or, or claiming that God is gendered at all. It's uh, hard to assign gender to something that you don't actually believe in. Yeah. So there were no real assumptions there. We were just following popular diction, I suppose you could say. Right. The same way we would refer to Scooby-Doo as a he. You know, I mean, that's... Scooby-Doo doesn't exist, Scooby-Doo doesn't have genitalia, and yet popular convention holds that Scooby-Doo is male. Yeah. We're going to move on now to our interview with David Myers. Uh, Jeremy, you and Luke got to sit down with David Myers this, uh, this past week before his presentation for CFI Michigan. Yeah, it was a great opportunity for people who were of very different views. David Myers is a Christian. He, he's very... Um, 
atypical of a lot of Christians in, in many of his beliefs. Well, he really emphasizes skepticism, science, right. and critical thinking. And so we had a lot of common ground in which to begin a discussion with him. Right. And here it is. Joining us on the show is Dr. David Myers. Myers is a professor of psychology at Hope College, and his articles have been published in numerous journals, including Science, The American Scientist, and The American Psychologist. He's also written articles and commentary for a host of magazines from Scientific American to Christian Century and even Skeptic Magazine. He is also the author of several books, including What God Has Joined Together, The Christian Case for Gay Marriage, and most recently, A Friendly Letter to Skeptics and Atheists, Musings on Why God is Good and Faith Isn't Evil. I must add, his psychology textbooks are used in colleges across the nation. In fact, I even have a worn-down copy of Myers and Modules on my bookshelf. So, David Myers, welcome to Reasonable Doubts. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Jeremy. So your skeptical credentials are firmly in place. You've written for Skeptic Magazine. You've challenged the validity of near-death experiences, extrasensory perception, and other paranormal phenomena, even the efficacy of intercessory prayer. What got you interested in promoting skepticism and critical thinking? Well, I really come from a perspective that is a faith perspective that we're probably going to talk about in this half Mm -hmm. hour that assumes that there is a God, but it's not me and it's not you, and therefore I can be certain that some of my beliefs contain error. And the one of the effective ways to sift truth from error is to use the scientific method to ask, what do you mean and how do you know? And then to evaluate the claim using the best available evidence. And so I want to bring that to everything, every kind of claim that is amenable to scientific investigation. And thus, my introductory textbook that you mentioned is replete with critical examinations of things ranging from, as you mentioned, near-death experiences, ESP and so forth, to repressed memory claims, to some claims that seem very bizarre but turn out to be true, Mm -hmm. like electroconvulsive therapy works for uh, otherwise intractable depression. I wouldn't have guessed it. (laughs) Uh, so often um, the findings of science and especially psychology can be counterintuitive like that. It shows us things we didn't expect to see. As a person of faith, as, as a Christian specifically, have there ever been times where you've changed your religious beliefs or, or your mind about certain doctrines of the faith based on your research in psychology? Yes, and you've already alluded to one which was uh, reported on in this recent book, dealing with sexual orientation and gay marriage, so that at one time I would have believed that sexual orientation was a moral choice. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that anymore. The evidence is just overwhelming that sexual orientation is a natural – is a naturally disposed uh, orientation. Some people are attracted to their own sex and others most to the opposite sex. And so where do we go from there is something we need to think about. Now – I also used to believe that the Bible firmly taught that uh, same-sex intimacy was immoral, Mm -hmm. and I no longer believe that that is the teaching of the Bible as a whole. So when you you became convinced of the scientific data that there is a natural predisposition to – for some people to homosexuality – that then influenced your your beliefs or your interpretation of the Bible, or did you discover things independently in in the Bible yeah, and say scholarship? R- relatively independently, my interest in following the literature and sexual mm-hmm. orientation, on which I had to report in my introductory psych textbook, so I've got to read this research. I guess made me interested in reading what biblical scholars were saying about biblical teachings. There are seven what are called clobber passages among Mm -hmm. more than 31,000 biblical verses. So first of all, we've got pretty thin gruel. And as I read these biblical scholars, they helped me to understand that what, what those seven verses were saying when understood in their context was a message about inhospitality, the exploitation of children, uh, temple prostitution or some such, and really said nothing about loving 
enduring partnerships between people who love each other who happen to be of the same sex. Mm -hmm. That's just not spoken of, nor is homosexuality as an orientation really spoken of or or even understood in the time of the biblical culture. Mm -hmm. So I'd say those two tracks were happening somewhat independently, but they came together into a nice convergence, and thus... Mm -hmm. That's the roots of the Christian case for gay marriage. I read your book, uh, the, the What God Has Joined Together, The Christian mm-hmm. Case for Gay Marriage. And uh, it, like you were mentioning, it is kind of a blend of social science research on why marriage has benefits, and those benefits could be uh, uh, would be beneficial to gay people as well as straight. And then it's a mixture of that with together with what you just mentioned, a, a scriptural argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess one one question that we often talk about uh, amongst ourselves is, would there, has there been any instances where a scriptural argument for a topic would clash with social science? If not really, if hypothetically, what would happen if those two things didn't mesh? Uh, and I, th- I think that's certainly possible. And I would say claims about the effectiveness of distant intercessory prayers would be one possible example of what you're talking about, uh, namely that people would make the empirically testable claim that their prayers are changing events or leading to healing or some such. Well, the very nature of the claim is such that it almost invites somebody to put it to empirical test. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's been done in several recent very large-scale prayer experiments. Uh, I, in advance of the biggest of these, filed a prediction of null effects for both scientific reasons and for religious reasons as well, in my case. And in fact, the, the, the recent experiments have all had null effect of distant intercessory prayer on people's healing. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, in kind of easy claims that, you know, ask and it shall be given in some almost mechanical sense are disconfirmed by research. But for that matter, it was disconfirmed by the experience of Job and millions and billions of people since who haven't gotten exactly what they asked for. So that maybe forces up to us to step back as theists and rethink our understanding of the transcendent and its relationship to our daily existence. That amid many things where it seems to me biblical religion is deeply congenial to scientific thought, but that's that's a different it's a, it's a perfectly fair question because there are points of tension as well as points of harmony. Like, but for some people, it's evolution and creationism, or oh yeah, uh, things like sure, that, where, I, sure, it? exactly. And that would be another instance where, from when I was at least a boy to today, I've changed my mind. I was even shocked uh, when I, I believe I read somewhere that you don't believe in a non-physical soul. Yeah, yes, indeed. The idea that the the human essence is composed of two things: a body and a soul. Mm-hmm is not a Christian, it's not fundamentally a Christian idea. Mm-hmm. It's a Platonic idea, and it's one that's represented in New Age thought in various forms, including the idea that at death the soul flies free from the body and maybe will come back and rejoin it, uh, ideas about uh, travel out of body and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, would all kind of be illustrative of this dualistic understanding of human nature. Yeah. That's in sharp contrast to the Hebraic biblical idea that we are whole creatures, we are mind-body units. And this is expressed uh, in things like the Apostles' Creed, where there is this equally fantastic idea uh, that is celebrated on Easter of the resurrection of the body, of life after death. But death is real. Mm-hmm. It's not the liberation of the soul. That was Plato. That's not the Bible. Now, I would say there's no topic in Christian theology where seminary professors and biblical scholars depart more from what lay people out in the pews think than this one. Because most Christian, most lay Christians think that the human essence is composed of a body and an immortal soul. Mainline biblical scholars say that's, that's, that's Greek Platonism. That's not biblical teaching. We, we talk about on the show all the time from a secular perspective that psychology, when, when you take the field as a whole, the, the one thesis it seems to beat down the most is, is dualism. Yes. And so it's encouraging to me to see that theologians are taking account of that data and, and of course, as you said, um, recognizing that uh, some of these may have been uh, Greek ideas from Greek philosophy that are infiltrating the scriptures or, or passed down through the tradition. And I even saw a, a professor of philosophy at, at Calvin College 
say this in front of an entire church, and I about fell out of my chair. Oh, certainly. But, but it is uh, – but one of the questions that would follow from that is what about free will? How does an embodied view of the human person affect y- your ideas of free will uh, from a well, religious perspective? Here I'm on thin ice, so I don't want to skate out too far from the shore, uh, Jeremy. But I would say that uh, within the Christian community, there's a variety of views on this subject. But they, you know, the, historically, the Calvinist view of predestination and all has actually been pretty congenial to the deterministic uh, view that, that you're talking about. That's what I was just going to say. It so may not be, uh, pe- people, may not be people, that challenging you at know, all. Early Christian thinkers in the United States, like Jonathan Edwards, argued against the freedom of the will, as did Martin Luther. So it depends which body of Christian thought you're talking about as to whether they emphasize the freedom of the will or not. By the way, the way this gets expressed practically in religious terms, if you come from the more Calvinist line of thought of what's called covenantal religion, they probably practice infant baptism, and you're not asked to make a free will choice at some later time to uh, to accept the faith because you're sort of born and nurtured into it. If you're more from the free will end of Christianity, then you may not practice infant baptism into the faith because that's a choice you make as a an adult uh, or, or at least an older child, a free will choice. So you see... Christians aren't of one mind on that particular topic. Certainly, um, we we come from a from an atheistic perspective, uh, a naturalistic perspective on this program. You know, we often advocate that skeptics and uh, naturalists reach across the aisle and join together with like-minded believers. And so, I really do appreciate how you think more critically about these theological issues yeah. and, and bring I, and science And I appreciate you saying that because I think in response, it is possible to be both a skeptic and a person of faith. Skepticism does not exclude faith. And uh, there are many subscribers to the Skeptical Inquirer who are deep people of Certainly. faith and just love what the Skeptical Inquirer or the Skeptic Magazine you know, are all about in bringing critical intelligence to the assessment of popular ideas. What I'm wondering, though, is is there a lot of resistance to your type of thinking about this? For example, with with your book, uh, What God Has Joined Together, um, and working at a Christian college like Hope College, do you get a lot of resistance from people there who don't see things the way you do? Uh, Within my own institution, I'd say my colleagues on the faculty are overwhelmingly supportive. Mm -hmm. I would say where it's caused some trouble for the institution is that some of its constituents and the church, when this became front-page news and a number of newspapers in my state, including the Detroit Free Press and the Grand Rapids Press, uh, were outraged and let the college know. And so Mm -hmm. my college president, who wasn't real pleased with the book, you know, had to kind of take it on the chin for me. Bless him, though. He, He buffered it. He absorbs it. And, you know, I got... Tons of mail and emails from people who were, including alumni, including gay former alumni, whom I never realized were gay, who were deeply appreciative of this. What I try to tell people is that what a college is about is ultimately it's part of the free marketplace of ideas. It's a place where, uh, in a spirit of humility, I can contribute information and the conclusions I draw from it into the public sphere invite others to do the same, and then we'll have an exchange uh, and we'll test each other's ideas and probe each other's ideas in the confidence that out of that free marketplace of ideas ultimately will emerge greater understanding and greater wisdom. And that's what I believe even more than any of my own arguments. And that's just a process I'm participating in. And sometimes following where the evidence leads takes me to places that are uncomfortable for those on the right, and sometimes it takes me to places that are maybe uncomfortable for those on the left. But in both cases, I'm simply trying to pursue truth as best as I can discern it. I went to a a Christian university that that wasn't as open-minded, that wasn't as tolerant as that sort of thing, but I know that many of my professors were. 
And so I'm very encouraged to see that hope backed you up, uh, even if some people were concerned. And, and of course, anything that's going to promote freedom of conscious in intellectual inquiry on, on campuses and religious campuses is a good thing. Now, taking what you said about uh, the mutual exchange of ideas and open forum for debate, I want to move on to your, your latest book, A Friendly Letter to Skeptics and Atheists, Musings on Why God is Good and Faith Isn't Evil. What brought you to write the book, and what's its general message? I'd say I wrote the book after reading Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, with their shared argument that religion, all religions, are not only false, they're dangerous, they're evil, they're toxic. And so in response to that, I want to agree with some things about the skeptical argument, and though the book is entitled by the publisher, A Friendly Letter to Skeptics and Atheists, it's also a friendly letter to fellow people of faith about some lessons we need to learn from critical uh, examination of a lot of claims, such as what we've already talked about, including body and soul and nature of intercessory prayer, sexual orientation, and so forth, and even the, the value of science itself which is appropriately faith-rooted and in the freedom of inquiry, all that. Okay. So that's the first part of the message. We, we will have a link to the book on the blog, by the way, and I've read portions of it, and uh, and I would agree with what he says. I, I would encourage our, our skeptical listeners to, to read it, but also this would be a good one to actually buy or give to your Christian friends as well because it does model uh, a more thoughtful approach to religion than I think you often find in many apologetic texts, but... Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank you for saying that. Uh, But then I'd say the real meat and potatoes of the book is taking on the contention that that religion is dangerous, it's toxic. And what we've got out there in the existing literature, it seems to me, is sort of a battle of anecdotes. On the one hand, we've got stories of great evils that have been done in the name of religion. The Crusades, the Bible-banging KKKers, uh, the... Uh, gay-phobic, you know, people, the Reverend Fred Phelps, Fred Phelps and such, uh, who do, you know, seems to me, great harm to to people and even to the faith itself. George Bush launching the Iraq War because God told him to do so. Uh, opposition to stem cell research and the and the, the teaching of science and uh, in terms of evolution. And on the other hand, we've got the religious roots of universities, hospitals, hospices. We have the religious roots of the anti-apartheid and civil rights movements. So we've got, we've got good and bad folks, you know, doing good and bad things in the name of religion. So, but the anecdotes kind of cancel each other out, it seems to me. We've had genocide conducted by atheists and genocide conducted by people of faith. So what I want to ask is, okay, folks, on balance, what does the contemporary evidence show us? And I think, bottom line, the contemporary evidence shows us that uh, an act of religious faith tends to be associated with happiness, with health, altruism, with generally with the flourishing life. And we can talk about what that evidence is if you want. Yeah, I, I wanted to get into that since I'm familiar with a lot of the, the evidence. And one of the things in particular that I was interested in um, is, the, uh, like you mentioned, the, um, the hypothesis that uh, greater amounts of, of faith are, are related to greater well-being or flourishing. One of the problems in some of the more with earlier research with that was that often the linear hypothesis means that did indeed show that there's a strong relationship between greater faith, higher, like strong religious faith with life satisfaction and well-being relative to weak religious faith or maybe non-church attendance. For example, in your in your American psychologist paper, you show you know a nice linear graph there, but at the bottom end is infrequent church attendance, and a lot of the articles yeah. that you cite also... Not, or just non-attendance. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's a difference between people that are weak, religious, like I believe in a God but don't pray or don't go to church, right. and strong, like CFI members, st- strong atheists, people who That's have a right. certainty in non-belief. And one of the things I found in my study was actually when I beef up the numbers at that end, because I have this whole pool of people here, that actually the relationship was like a hook or a curve. Okay, it yes. was indeed true that people that were high in religious faith were higher in life satisfaction, happiness, well-being, and that people who were weak or not sure were lower. But then it ticked up again at the opposite end where people that were strongly atheist or, or you know members of a mm-hmm. group like that had equal happiness to these strong religious people. So it was like a, a curvilinear thing. So uh, I think probably what we've got there, Luke, and you make a very good point in that we were kind of absorbing together thoughtful atheists with people who are just 
non-religious. You know, they just they're, they're not thinking about it or whatever. And when you look at the subgroup of let's call them thoughtful, convinced atheists, you're tending to look at a population that is mostly pretty highly educated, middle income or more, and uh, these are. You know, these are demographic characteristics of relatively happy people in general. So atheists probably have, uh, and I would believe that this is the case, have a very low arrest rate. I mean, they're probably underrepresented rather than overrepresented in prisons, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah. But in general, across the population, very highly devout religious people are less prejudiced than nominally religious people, for example, who are more prejudiced than irreligious people. So there we do get uh, uh, this curvilinear relationship uh, that you're talking about. Uh, And likewise, in epidemiological studies that track thousands of lives through years of time, uh, a supportive faith community seems to have, well— it's hard to know cause and effect here. It's at least associated with uh, a lower risk of ill health and premature death. Isn't that probably pointing to things like active participation in a community, social support networks, um, it, other than than religion per se? It definitely is uh, an indicator of a social support variable at work. That's a very good point. Um, And in fact, that's a large part of the religious factor, I think, because human beings come with a deep need to belong. We come with a need for social support. Mm -hmm. Uh, Relationships matter. And the difference between religion and solo spirituality is religion is done in community. Mm -hmm. It's done with others. And it is a support network. In fact, the very root of the word religion, religio, has to do with binding together. And religious language drips with communal imagery, the, the, the fellowship of kindred spirits, the ties that bind, and so forth. And so that is a large part of the, of the religious factor. Uh, there, that's not all there is to it. There's, uh, it's also a meaning system that helps people cope with the terror of their own mortality, as today's what are called terror management theorists would remind us. It's a system that gives people a sense of significance and even esteem if they feel they're accepted just as they are, the way they are. It motivates them to look outward rather than to be narcissistic. Th- and these are all positive things. And in the end, if you take all these component variables, you can probably pretty well account for the religious factor. I mean, much like you could you could get rid of the hurricane effect if you squeeze out, that is, factor out the effect of the, the wind, the storm surge, uh, the mm-hmm. rain effect, and so forth. Eventually, there's nothing left of the hurricane factor because the hurricane is a package variable of all these things. And likewise, the religious factor, it's a social support factor. It's a meaning factor. It's, an, mm-hmm. it's a self-esteem factor. It, it's, it's a hope factor. I, I wouldn't disagree with anything you say, but, but kind of pressing the challenge, wouldn't, wouldn't that mean then if we were to take an, an equivalent group on the non-theistic side, an active group of non-believers um, joining together, such as what we have here in CFI Michigan, wouldn't we expect to see a lot of the same things? Or as as Luke's study, I think on, on most of those measures, you did see uh, life satisfaction levels and, well, one area and that, other things seem to be One area equivalent. that was, yeah, the religious people in the church sample were superior and was social, perceived social support. And I think that for one thing that is different is what I find is that being a member of a church is essentially different than being a member of an intellectual group like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some of the mediator, in some of the relationships, the mediator ones that you talked about, that is, the, it, you probably don't get a sense of, of social support when you discuss scientific issues. But yeah, in regards to Jeremy's question, I guess that was my follow-up too, and that is, wouldn't it be then possible to have uh, a lot of those variables if you are a member of a of a group that you have strong certainty in your non-belief? Or maybe even, uh, uh, let's say, in a non, uh, when you're not in a minority culture in the United States, you know, atheists and agnostics are what four or five percent. If you are, let's say, in Sweden or Denmark or something like that, the relationship sure. appears to be a little bit different. So, great, great question. If you can find support, meaning, hope, and so forth in a different place, mm-hmm. isn't that going to work for you? Just like church does for some folks, and. I presume the answer is yes. So I agree with you. 
But remember, the question I'm responding to is the contention that religion is toxic, that it's evil, that it's dangerous, that it's degrading to human well-being. And not just in terms of health and happiness, but in terms of altruism and so forth, I'm making, showing people the evidence that it's associated, by and large, with good things. Now, because I hear you saying it between the lines, well, that doesn't mean that it's true and it's the only way to have these benefits. And I, sure, I'll grant that because I'm not the person to argue, uh, you know, truth or falsity, whether God exists or not. That's a completely independent question from the function of religion. And I respect that you're conservative with your claims and what you do with your right. data. And, and you know, exactly uh, what you say, I think, I think your book does respond well to these broad brush claims that people like Christopher Hitchens are making that, that uh, religion poisons everything. My, my concern was that there, there are a few broad characterizations that, that you make as well about, uh, about religion always leading to happiness or, or not always, but on the whole leading to yeah. happiness, uh, um, health and so on. Uh, for example, when we stop looking at populations and when we start looking at individuals, uh, oftentimes what we find is – you know, self-report data can vary quite a bit differently from people's actual behaviors. So, if, for instance, charitable giving. It's true. It, nobody can doubt that uh, as far as like weekly planned charitable giving, churches are superior in, in, uh, in their amount of giving to charity. But what studies have also shown, I think this is what Hansen, Vandenberg, and Patterson is that uh, spontaneous behavior that would be you know behavior oriented yes. with part of people's character? Uh, there is no significant increase uh, for religious people, and in fact, lower religiosity predicted higher levels of spontaneous giving. Uh, we could go through similar examples: scripture priming, honesty and cheating, aggression and retaliation, forgiveness, helpfulness. There's there's plenty of studies showing that. What people self-report their image of being – their self-image of being more charitable, more helpful and so on is quite a bit different from what the behavioral studies in the laboratory uh, show. Maybe, Jeremy, another way we could look at this, there is two kinds of altruism or two kinds of helping behavior. One is spontaneous acts on the street. Something happens right now and you've got to decide whether to help the person with drop books or a flat tire or whatever. Are religious people and non-religious people, do they differ in their spontaneous helping? And you're absolutely right. In the studies I've seen, there hasn't been a, much of a difference. The other kind of helping behavior is more intentional. It's in the form of volunteerism, working with the poor, the infirm, the elderly, and it's in charitable giving which, by the way, some of a good portion of it occurs to one's own faith community, but to things beyond as well. Uh, is selflessness, intentional selflessness, different? And that's where we see the difference between actively religious and less religious people. Uh, Robert Putnam of Bowling Alone fame uh, is finding this as well. And he tells me, and I think this is going to be reported in his forthcoming book, Amazing Grace, that it's not just in terms of their giving to their own faith communities, but their volunteerism and their giving to things beyond that he finds people who are engaged in faith communities tend to be more altruistic, more self-giving. Wouldn't one difference, though, with that is that in the United States, as you've mentioned before, that that, that, uh, with a religious majority, that's easier to get set up with volunteering when you're instantiated within a religious community. Uh, what you find with things like, uh, like I mentioned before, Sweden and Denmark, uh, some of the stuff that Phil Zuckerman talked about in his book, and that is that uh, those people view it as the government's responsibility to do things like, and they right. find higher government per capita spending on sure. charitable aid and whatnot. And so maybe one difference between our country with the individual advantage of religious people and their individual charity, which is, uh, uh, like you said, it's clear that, uh, that, People that are more liberal, maybe, or non-religious in those countries view that not as an individual yes, choice, but the government see. should do that for them. That's, that's why the Netherlands gives so much to that, that, Africa. That's a know. very good point. So maybe they're expressing their altruism by being willing to vote themselves higher taxes. Much higher taxes, and something they probably would never fly in the United States. But I guess maybe in some ways it's almost apples and oranges that in our country, charity is, is, is more of an individual Option and yeah. in that case, the religious people tend to shine. A lot of their yes. institutions are and intertwined. I, all like I can Salvation say is Army. I totally agree that our whole notion of charity should involve our our notion of what government should be doing too. Well, regardless, I, I certainly would agree. You know, and, and that's something we have talked about on Reasonable Doubts before. That the best answer for for the atheists 
to that argument is to get more involved in charity, more more volunteer work uh, here in America and elsewhere. Um, I just want to, again, thank you so much, David Myers, for joining us on the show. Thank you for being a model to your fellow Christians of, of critical thinking and skepticism and you know making that available and approachable to them. Thank you again for joining us thank on Reasonable Doubt. Thank you, Jeremy. I, I, I do think that there's a place for reasonable doubt, just as there is for reasonable faith. And I think faith needs to be reasonable. Well, I'm sorry to have missed out on that uh, interview that you and Luke got to do with David Myers. It sounds like you got along pretty well. I I was expecting a little bit more of a a battle, and he, I think, conceded a lot of points pretty quickly on and and, uh, seemed to come to agreement on a lot of things. Yeah, it was it was a success as far as having a, a good friendly interview and, and discussion, and, and I'm, just never a bad thing. No, never, never. I was really glad it happened, and it, it did seem like he conceded quite a bit early on. Mm-hmm. In fact, Luke and I were pretty stunned that on that that point we talked to him about uh, the fact that he's using his church attendance as his measurement. Uh, for all these po- positive effects to health, right. civility, all these other things that he mentioned, we pointed out that he didn't have uh, that that an adequate control, I guess, if you're testing for religion, mm-hmm. would be to take a similar group of of active, strong non-belief, mm-hmm. and that you would notice a lot of the same effects and uh, people who attend regular meetings, um, that sort of thing. That really changes the way that you look at a majority of the data that he's presenting. What it's pointing to is that we can't say it's religion per se. It's just some of these things that are associated with attending any sort of congregation, getting outside of the house, meeting with people regularly that you can talk to and and people that will encourage you to uh, engage in in volunteer acts and community service. That really does – challenged the notion that it's religion that is uh, responsible for all those positive benefits. Now, Meyer didn't see that concession as being such a big deal, and I understand his reason why. He was, uh, he was focused on, look, my, my claim is not that religious people are better than non-religious or anything else like that. Right. I'm just trying to show here that religion is compatible with very good things, that it doesn't lead to all these nasty, horrible things that you might believe from reading reading Hitchens and and Harris and all that. It became obvious to me later that evening when Luke and I attended Meyer's presentation Hmm. that we really should have held him to that critique more because when watching his presentation that evening, the way he frames his data, it really does give the impression that what he is comparing is belief over non-belief. And see, by using church attendance as his measure, he's conflating right. in his sample people who are religious, they're just nominally religious, people who are non-religious. But go to church anyway. Yeah, that go to church anyways mm-hmm. or have communities of their own. Right. And then this big group of people that maybe don't care either way, right. but yet they might be active and volunteering in any sort of social situation where you're going to be active and, and have some of these same benefits. He'll admit that, and he did during the presentation. Well, that's good, but he doesn't let that alter the information. But he admits that when you when you bring it up. Right. He doesn't initially share oh, okay. that or or make a good point of of making that clear from the beginning. And so... I was watching a lot of people in the room, very educated people, getting the wrong impression from his data. Mm. And that, that really concerned me. And uh, I feel kind of conflicted here. And, and there's all sorts of critiques I want to bring up about Meyer now that we didn't mention during the interview. And I don't think it's really fair to do that because he's not here to respond. We'll get him on again. But nevertheless, Maybe. I do feel responsible for some of the claims I made. And um, at the time we did this interview... I had only read portions of Meyer's book because I couldn't get a hold of the actual volume. So I read several chapters that were posted online, Hmm. and that's how I had access to part of the book. Those chapters were really good. If that's all I had to judge by, I'd stand by the praise that I gave the book in the interview. Mm -hmm. 
since then, uh oh, we were selling copies at the uh, at the event, and I've had a chance to read it in more detail. And uh, I I'm really disappointed to say that I I don't think. I don't think it deserves as much praise as I previously said. Mm. There's a lot of information in there that's that's pretty one-sided. When we get out of the group studies and when we get into specific things like scripture priming, other experiments, there's a whole other side that's easy to find in the literature. Altruism is another one. Right. Easy to find in the literature, another side that gives it a very different flavor. And so I, I, I kind of... I kind of have a different impression from when I started. I don't take back anything I said about Meyer in the interview. I, I really do think he is a person that deserves a lot of praise. I think he's earned that title a skeptic in most of the areas that he covers. Right. Uh, just his previous body of work, I, I don't think anybody could seriously deny that. It, it is a big deal, for example, all those things that he was admitting in the interview, such as uh, not believing in a non-physical soul conceding the right. you know that that homosexuality is not wrong saying that intercessory prayer doesn't work all of those things that's big yeah if you haven't grown up in a protestant evangelical background you may not appreciate what a big deal that is yeah true so so i don't take back a lot of the praise i gave david myers but i must say that that uh looking at the full context of his book i'm i i would be much more critical than i was in the interview so maybe sometime soon we can have a follow-up and, and ask some of those questions that Luke and I wanted to get to, but simply didn't have the time. But I did want to mention that. Fair enough. So uh, those of you listening to us on the radio right now on Friday morning, stay tuned because up next we're going to continue the conversation and we're going to be on WPRR's Faith and Reason, hosted by Bill Freeman. Um, Although many of our international listeners have uh, written back to me since I sent out the notice on Facebook saying, yeah, I'm not getting up that early. <laughs> uh, we will be releasing the show yes. as as a podcast as well. So if you uh, don't get to listen to the live broadcast, you'll still be able to hear it. But um, those of you who are listening, give us a call at 616-656-1680. And that's from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Standard Time on Friday, May 22nd. Looking forward to it. In the meantime, send us in your questions, comments, challenges, show topics, that sort of thing, to doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Zazzle. We're everywhere. See you later. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.